Roy Osing is a guy who took a startup internet company to over a billion dollars in sales. He is the only author, entrepreneur, and executive leader who delivers practical and proven, audacious, unheard of ways to produce high-performing businesses and successful careers. Roy is a former president, CMO, and entrepreneur with over 40 years of successful and unmatched executive leadership experience in every aspect of business. As a president of a major data and internet company, his leadership in audacious, unheard of ways took the company from its early stages to over a billion dollars in annual sales. He is a blogger, content marketer, and mentor to young professionals. As an accomplished business advisor, he is the author of the No Nonsense book series, Be Different or Be Dead. With the audacious, unheard of ways I took a startup to a billion dollars in sales as his seventh book. Welcome, Roy. You are listening to the Disruptive Minds Podcast, home of the entrepreneur. Welcome back to Disruptive Minds. Today we're joined by Roy. I'm real excited to have him on here. We're going to be talking about his philosophy of how brands need to either be different or they're going to be dead. Did that sum it up pretty good there, Roy? Yeah, you're on the right track, Bill, on the right track. So uh, could you give the listeners a little bit of an idea about your background and who you are? Yeah, so uh, I, um, I, my most recent real job was uh, president of an internet and data company that we, we had the opportunity to, to grow to a billion in annual sales. And so prior to that, I kind of like meandered through the telecom world for uh, several years. I mean, I've been, I've been, I've been fussing with the stuff for like, for like 40 years and the whole be different or be dead theme is kind of like been my brand ever since I can remember. And, um, I'm a practitioner. So, um, I believe in, if you can't get it done, I don't even want to talk about it. So I spent all my life, uh, trying to figure out how to be different in a way that people cared about and built a startup around that. And um, yeah, it was quite uh, quite rewarding and uh, very, very pleased. Right now, I'm trying to give it back. I'm, I'm sort of a, I write a lot right now. So I guess you could call me semi-retired, although my wife claims that that's, that's a figment of my imagination. <laughs> so, but I'm, I'm trying to pull back a little bit, but I'm, I really enjoy doing uh, podcasts like this where I can hopefully uh, impart and share some of the things that worked for me to others and to help them. Uh, and uh, as I say, I do a lot of writing. So right now it's uh, Roy's time is spent trying to help other people. Yeah. It's always good to give back. It's always good to, you know, have these conversations and, you know, get information out there to the public. And one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading through uh, that, that thing you sent over was the idea of, you know, this be different or be dead and how it's more applicable today than it's ever been, right? You got online everything now, right? You can get your contractor online, right? It used to be, you just get a package online, you know, you go on there and you trade your stocks. But now almost everything we do from the hairdresser to the electrician, to online shopping, to uh, picking your dentist, right? It's all done online now. And because of that, there's endless amounts of competition. So you're no longer just competing with, you know, the guy four doors down who put a sign in his yard, 
but you're now competing with the guy in the next town over. So I think being different is more important than ever. And what I wanted to get was your take on your mantra, be different or be dead. And what that kind of came from and how you arrived at that and what it means to you. Yeah. So as I said earlier, I mean, I've been fussing with the, the whole concept of differentiation um, as, ever since I, I was a young man. And it occurred to me very, very early, uh, you know, well before the internet was even thought about probably that, that um, organizations in particular really weren't doing a very good job answering the question that a customer would pose, which is basically, why should I do business with you as opposed to your competitor? Um, I concluded that, that really uh, businesses uh, were really unable to answer that question in a way that, that was granular enough that a customer would understand. Like, for example, and it's, by the way, and it, I, would, I would suggest that it's worse today. I mean, you would think in a world, as you mentioned, with, with insane competition, powerful customers, uh, uh, the environment changing on us, uh, the business climate changing on us in a heartbeat, you would think that organizations would actually get better at differentiation. And I believe undifferentiation is actually happening. So we're going in the opposite direction. Let me give you an example. I mean, people continue to use uh, expressions like we're better we're best, we're number one, uh, we're market leaders, we're first. Look at, I call that claptrap, Bill. It doesn't mean anything to customers, mm -hmm. okay? Because that's the organization's view of themselves. So it's, it's like narcissism 101, as far as I'm concerned. And so the, the, the notion of be different or be dead says, if you can't find a way to carve out uh, your unique, position in a marketplace and satisfy what people care about in a unique way, eventually you will not be here. And I use the word be dead as sort of the ultimate consequence um, of not being able to, to successfully uh, be different. And, you know, it's a bit extreme, but the reality is if you look around at, at most business failures, okay, they fail because they became commodities. They failed because they couldn't differentiate themselves from competitors and the online world, all that's done in my view is accelerate a process that has been with us for decades. Um, and so, you know, what I've done is I've actually created my own solution to that. Uh, and it's a solution that, that was very helpful as we uh, tried to take advantage of a, of a burgeoning data market in terms of IP technology. And fortunately, uh, we're able to build a business uh, to a billion a year. So that's the proof point, right, of successful differentiation. And, you know, there's carnage around it that shows that if you can't do that, you won't be here very long. Yeah, I really love this point because it's really hard to prove you're the best, especially if it's in an industry with a lot of people, right? If it's a very large industry with a lot of competition, a lot of competitors, it's hard to prove to be the best. Most of the times your customers are not shopping around and using eight or nine different competitors, right? So their frame of reference is probably pretty small and it's just a hard claim to substantiate. But what I think is even more insightful than that is the idea of this differentiation, right? Finding a niche. I like to use the word sphere of genius, right? You create this area, this space where you're the expert or you're the person who 
only does it this way or does it this unique way, right? Because that's where your special capabilities are that make you stand apart from the competition. And by highlighting those kind of things, it's a lot more impactful than just going, we're the largest car dealer in the tri-state area. Well, you know, <laughs> you know, so you're right. I agree with you. The, the issue I have with uh, comparatives uh, and superlatives like better, best, uh, largest and all that stuff is it first of all, in whose opinion? Right. Okay. I mean, that's narcissistic. Okay. Like who, who, who define for me what is best? Okay, in a way that makes any sense to customers. And so to me, it's lazy marketing, Bill. It's easy to claim that stuff, you know, and rarely are you called to, to prove it. But in a way, it's intellectually dishonest. Okay, because um, depending on who you're talking to, look at, I mean, the, the, we don't exist in mass markets anymore. Not that they ever existed. We exist in, in, in very specific um, environments where individuals, you know, get get to express themselves. No two individuals are like. And so what somebody loves, somebody else doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so the, the ability to, to actually choose who you want to serve is, is, is paramount. And you have to do that. The expression of differentiation comes from uh, the, the, the choice you make in terms of who you want to serve. It's not a mass market claim. And so basically the process that I created is called the only statement. You're not better. You're not best. And you actually mentioned the word only about a couple of minutes ago. Mm -hmm. And that's where we need to go. We need to define who we're going to serve. We need to figure out what they care about, not what they need. Okay. This is not a business about figuring out needs. Because if you want to go there, you're going to be a commodity and you're going to compete on price. And we know where that ends up. Figure out who you want to serve, figure out what they crave or what they care about and be the only one that does it the way you do it. If you can find a way to do that, first of all, it's a space that has very little competition, which means that your price flexibility is huge, right? I mean, people who get their cravings satisfied are really price insensitive. It's not like, well, I'm going to pay this amount for internet. If you can figure out what they care about really, uh, because it's emotionally driven and passionately driven, then it will tend to be a segment where price tends to be not not all that important. And that's the kind of world that that we really need to get into. And so the only statement has been exceedingly successful uh, for me personally in terms of not only the business that we grew, but also now dealing with clients uh, in terms of, you know, how how can they establish a unique position in the marketplace? I've created a process around it. And they're absolutely astounded when we're finished uh, with the work and the ability for them then to go out and communicate in in meaningful ways to clients and prospective clients why they should buy from them in a way that they've never been able to do before. Yeah, no, having that differentiation factor and having something that you do or you specialize in is one of the best ways to step out from the crowd. But what really captivated me in the last thing you said was the word crave. Right. Like the idea that somebody is going to buy something because they desire it, they want it, they need it. Right. Craving is much more powerful than need. And we see this all the time in decisions people make because people are not totally 
rational in their decision making if we're being honest right it's it, like you see people go to the grocery store they buy a bag of chips you know when they could have bought you know a chicken or something like that right you see it with all kinds of behaviors and i think it's interesting that you use the word crave because a lot of people can meet somebody's needs right if i need to like i do shipping right so if i need to get a package from here to california in two days there's 45 million people that can do that for you. But how do I make you crave this service compared to that service? Like what other juicy things can I throw in there that would interest you and make you go, that's the service that I want to have. Sure, these other services might be cheaper, whatever, you know, they can do the same thing, but this is the service that I want. I want access to that live tracking. I want those text notifications. I want to be able to see my inventory live. I want all these other factors that I can't get with those other guys. And it makes that, that offer crave worthy. So how do we market to people to make them crave our business or our product or our service? Well, we don't do it that way with respect. What we do is we build a business around what they crave. Okay, we're not in. I, I, I'm not suggesting that we we flog our our wares, we flog our products in a way to make them crave them. What I'm suggesting is we first of all deeply understand a target market, not the mass market. This is not a mass market game. I'm I'm talking about here. It's a very specific, um, targeted market where we decide that we're going to choose a certain number of customer groups. Let's call them as opposed to the typical expression of market segment, which is traditional marketing 101. But I'm talking about defining very specific customer groups that have the latent potential to drive the revenues that you want, and then do a deep dive and have a conversation with people in those groups to get a better understanding of what they crave. You may, dis you may discover, Bill, that you have to reframe your business. All right. You may have to you may discover that that there's a uniqueness in there that you at the moment don't deliver into and you need to create it if, in fact, you want to serve that group. And that's a planning process, quite frankly, that that I was very successful in building. And it's not like any other. I'm the only one that 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 does it. It's not traditional planning for sure, but it's very powerful because it starts with the premise. Identify um, who you're going to serve really understand in granular terms what they crave and then build your business or your only statement around that. It's not about looking at your competencies and skills and taking those to the market. It's subordinating basically your, your organization to those uh, craving factors or caring factors and building a business around them. You have the option of continuing to flog, but I have to tell you, if you continue to flog, you're going to play it. You're going to eventually be in the price game with everybody else. And so this is very definitely a, 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 a sort of a morphing, uh, not a pivot, but a complete breakaway from the way you do business, maybe depending on what you find out. I mean, I've had, I, look at, I, I just recently completed a, a consulting uh, uh, contract with a, with, with a boat dealer in Eastern Ontario. All right. They thought they were in the boat selling business. So they, they would sell boats to boat dealers. Um, but when we actually went through the process, uh, the planning process that I created, we actually discovered that what the boat dealer craved wasn't boats. 
they assumed that they would get boats that floated, okay, that mm -hmm. met the specs, right? They actually expected that, and to deliver into that meant you had to play, probably play the price game. What they really craved, what they really needed was help business, uh, was help growing their business. They needed a business development capability. And so what happened is we basically reframed their business in, into being able to say that literally we were the only one, this particular company, uh, who offered, who partnered with, with boat dealers to provide them uh, solutions to grow their business. So we completely changed the, the frame of reference away from being in the boat business into being in, in the business development business. And it would not never have happened had we not uh, taken a deep dive into what those boat dealers really craved. And so for people listening to this, this is not an easy process, okay? And it's, it's really, you got to cast away the way you think, okay? All of this stuff works. It doesn't work by taking what you have into the market. It says, build what you need based on what you discover in what people crave. And if you can't do that, um, then you have to spend more time until you get it right. Otherwise, you end up in, in the be dead category with the inability to differentiate in a meaningful way. Yeah, I really like that. It kind of goes back to the old saying of starting with the end in mind, right? Because you're thinking about catering to a market segment. Well, you know, target group, as you said, because you identified this group and you started to understand what their specific needs were rather than build a business, build the business model out, then try to match up your capabilities to other people's needs like everybody else is doing. It's looking at well, what you want to establish in the end rather than just building it and then trying to make it fit. Yeah, well, that's why there's a lack of differentiation, Bill, because everybody does it the same way. And so if everybody's doing it the same way, how can anybody claim that they're different? I mean, the process, the process that I build is really simple. Okay. It's a, I call it my strategic game planning process. Uh, and literally we can build a, a strategic plan in 48 hours for a client by answering three simple questions. The first question is how big do you want to be? That's, that's a statement of, of revenue growth in the next 24 months. So it's not a five-year planning horizon because I hate those. The fifth year never shows up, okay? Yep. Next year, it's the fourth year and blah, blah, blah. And everybody puts it off to the fifth year and and then a, the hockey stick takes in effect. So it never gets results. So it starts with, okay, like for example, if you're at a million in annual sales, what do you want to be in 24 months? Do you want to be 10 million? Do you want to be 2 million? Do you want to be 5 million? The reason that I start with the number is that the number drives the character of the strategy, it's, it's completely different than what most people do. You know, what they do is define a strategy and then, then figure out what the financials are. And if they don't like the financials, they change the assumptions to get different financials. They're just fooling themselves. Okay, so what I do is get the kids off the street. Let's have a conversation about revenue targets, growth goals in the next 24 months. And then let's build a strategy to deliver into that. The second question we've already uh, discussed, it's like, where are you going to get the money? If you want to get 5 million, where are you going to get it? And that's the who do you intend to serve thing, the, the definition of customer segments, if you will, or, or customer groups that have the latent potential to get you that revenue. And that's where you do the deep dive, okay, in terms of what do they care about? The third question is how are you going to compete and win? 
Now, this is not a mass market uh, uh, issue. It's, it's relative to the customers that you've chosen to serve, how are you going to compete and win? And that's where we develop the only statement. We can do that in literally 48 hours and, and the organization on the 49th hour are in the market executing. Okay, not perfection because that doesn't exist in a strategic sense. I mean, I've been in planning processes where we haven't had time to decide how we're going to execute because we've been so damn busy trying to perfect the direction, which is nonsensical and insane in a world that changes on you every three nanoseconds. And so what I do is let's get the plan just about right. Let's figure out, according to the definition and the process that I just outlined, let's start executing, let's start learning from execution, and let's tweak it on the run. Because the reality is that's the only way you can survive today. Yeah. And it's worked. It's worked so well, and it's so simple. People... People sit through this and go, wow, Roy, I mean, I can't believe we actually got a strategy in 48 hours. Well, the reason is that, that first of all, I had to create that strategy based on the data business I was in, because it's the only way I could step up on the revenue curve. If I waited to do pedantic traditional planning, I never would have got going, Bill. I would have still been here trying to get the plan perfect 20 years later. I love it. That is something that I stress to a lot of people. It's one of my biggest talking points is the idea of starting today, right? Because so many people are caught up on the idea of let's do four months of planning. Let's pre-build pre this, make sure the website's right, make sure the graphics right. Then let's do a press release and let's do this, that, the other thing. When really it's as simple as you said, sit down, put some real thought into it, go back, go through the process determine, you know, how much money do you want to make? Who do you want to sell? What do you got to do? Right. And then you just go at it because the great thing about business is that you don't necessarily have to succeed. There's lessons in failure too. And the thing is, I've always said that if you're going to fail, you want to fail fast. So if you know that if you come up with this great plan in 48 hours and it's not working, you know, three months, four months down the road, you can scrap it and come up with another plan. But if you wait and you play the game of, I'm going to do the traditional planning method, I'm going to take this back. We're going to look at it seven different ways. We're going to analyze it for this. We're going to build this, build that, blah, 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 blah. It might be two, three years down the road at that point till you realize that, hey, this idea was not that great or this idea was fantastic. I wish we did it sooner. So I always suggest, like you said, to get yourself to a point where you can start on this right away. Even if it's not perfect, even if it's version one, uh, I like the word minimum viable product, right? MVP. Um, and people think that's just a tech term, but no, it's a term that you can apply to everything in your business, right? You can have an MVP for operating procedures. You can have an MVP for uh, financial statements. You can have an MVP for uh, your online listing, your uh, service menu, uh, what, whatever. You can come up with a minimum viable product. You can go to market with it. You can test it in real time. And it all starts with coming up with a great plan and then figuring out how to execute. We've been taught, by the way, to, to be fallible, like we're talking about. We've been taught that we must seek perfection. We've been taught to use formulas. We've been taught to get 95% on, on our exams by conforming to rote, okay? That's the problem. 
And I've written an awful lot about why we need to put the textbook down and start to learn how to do things that, that actually are imperfect and always in draft form. Um, because the world is way too complicated to actually believe that you will get anything right the first time, which is kind of interesting because total quality management back in the day, I mean, one of the basic principles was do it right the first time, you know, get it right, price of nonconformance goes down, blah, 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 blah. In periods of relative continuity, you know, you may have a 50% chance of making that work. But today, you know, you have 0% chance of making that work. So, so, you know, similar to you, my, my mantra is be imperfect fast. Okay, we need as leaders in organizations to stress the fact that, that trying is a cultural bias that we need in our cultures, in organization, the acceptance of failure, okay, and the fact that if you're not trying to, to drive some imperfection, then quite frankly, you're not doing anything, okay, because you're not able to learn if that works or not by actually doing it. We love, uh, we love, uh, I will call it intellectual masturbation, Bill. Mm -hmm. We love that. Okay. Yeah. We love thinking and pondering. And the reason for that is we don't have to do anything. We don't have to put ourselves at risk. We can just think about the art of the possible. Okay. That might conform to a blue ocean strategy or might conform to somebody else's definition or model of, of consumer demand, but it's a joke. Because all that stuff sits in the intellect and the intellect doesn't achieve anything. What achieves something is heart and soul and actually getting out and doing stuff and taking risks. And as leaders, we don't do that enough. One of the biggest, uh, biggest criticisms I have of leadership today is it's holding on to the past definition, right? These guys, and I'll use the guys in a, in a, in a, in a sort of generic sense, are not spending enough time with their front lines. They're not in the trenches learning about the results, okay, of, of, of the direction that they've chosen, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're not nimble. They're, they're incapable of dealing with uh, body blows that, that everybody gets from time to time because, you know, uh, stuff happens out there that we didn't predict. If leaders aren't in contact and in touch with the people executing the strategy, they're totally incapable of reacting to change. And I look around and I see some organizations going down the tube, but they have not been able to spot changes in demand. I mean, hell, if you talk to your frontline people, they'll tell you what demand is. They'll tell you what the competitors are doing. But, oh, wait a minute, they're just junior level people way down in the organization, right? We got, we got other people that, that actually deal with them. And to me, that's a, a huge failure of leadership. I mean, I spent at least two days a week in, in the front line of my organization. I knew everything that was going on because it gave me the ability to adjust. If you can't adjust, you're done. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I really like the point of putting the textbook down, especially when you think about it in today's context, right? There's so many people out there, they're spending $250,000 to go to college for four years. They're investing all this time, all this money, yet in their business, they're afraid to take risks. They're afraid to get their hands dirty, go spend some time on the front lines, like you said. But meanwhile, they're able to rationalize this big college expense, right? When there are cheaper, more valuable lessons that are learned every day in your business. So if you go and you spend, let's say, $5,000 on a marketing campaign and it doesn't work, 
that's $5,000 into your education. And now you know what might work better in the future. Maybe now you have some insights, right? If you go and you take three hours out of your day and you go down to the assembly line and you just watch the process, watch how people are working, you can find major insights that could save your company you know, hundreds of dollars an hour in labor costs and other things. And you can refine your processes and scale more easily. And this is also something that will pay dividends. Meanwhile, if you go to college, you get a textbook, you get a piece of paper, you might get some valuable insights, but you're investing four years of your life and a quarter million dollars where in the business world, you can learn lessons pretty quickly if you're just willing to put in the time, the effort, uh, yeah, so, sometimes so the money. My sort of view of all of this is get whatever education you want. If, if you feel that you would like a master's in business administration, by all means, do that. If you want to master in economics because you like the subject matter, by all means, do that. However, and 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 that's good for you. But my but putting the textbook down is more about once you've done that, then let's talk about some real practical things that can leverage that into your success. And that's the problem today. It like stops there. There's this entitlement factor or expectation that because I've got a degree with seven or eight letters that I should be into six figures, blah, 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 blah. Or I can write a business plan that's going to drive success. The problem with that is it's not real. Okay. Mm -hmm. And people have basically been, been, been taught to believe that, that it will work. And so, but the inertia is so strong, Bill, to move people off that. I mean, there's momentum in that part of the world. And, and one of the biggest challenges I've had is, is to simply say to people, look, put the textbook down. Let's talk about some stuff that really worked. You'll never find it in any other textbook but Roy's. And Roy's is a how-to manual, okay, <laughs> built on a good foundation. But, but that's where, and the do it, try it, fix it thing that you're referring to is absolutely a critical ingredient to that, without which... I, I don't know, man. I, I just don't see how anybody can progress without without going that route. Um, uh, and and you'll never get a return on investment for your education if you don't take the next step and put the textbook down and do some other things. Yeah, I really like the phrase, do it, try it, fix it, right? It's a really simple you know game plan, but it works, right? Because a lot of times... Like you said, the, the the money, the changes, the places to increase revenue are on those front lines, right? These are the places where we're spending the most money. This is the place where the most hours of work are being conducted. It's not up at that top level where you might be making a decision or blah, 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 blah. It's the people executing that, that decision, right? It's the guy who's putting in 40 hours a week on the line times the 42 people down there doing it. And this is where you're really going to see a lot of results because in real time, like you said, you can implement something, you can try it, you can refine it and you can do it again. And yeah. you can implement that system again and again and again, and it will give you a return. Now, granted, as you continue to do it, they're diminishing, but it's still a return. And it's something that, you know, a lot of people feel that they don't have to do because when they looked at a college textbook for, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight years of their life, it said to do things one way. And that guy was, you know, writing a book. That guy was not standing on your assembly line watching your employees. <laughs> that, well, that, that's exactly the point. I mean, the authors, okay, of 
of content that has been so influential, okay, in the business world have never run a billion dollar a year business, have never run a $500,000 a year business, okay? So there's this huge gap between cause and effect. I mean, the thing that I keep saying to people is the reason that you should listen to my silly things that I did, like cleansing the internal environment, asking myself the magic question, hiring for goosebumps, line of sight leadership. The reason you should listen to these little principles is because they actually worked, okay? They actually helped collectively drive a business up the growth curve miraculously. I mean, one of the things that really worked for me and completely separated me from every other leader that I knew is I coined the phrase leadership by serving around. Like most people are aware of Tom Peters' work in the, in the day of management by wandering around. But I took that concept and said, it's not good enough. I need something a little more pointed. And it's, it was all about spending time in the work environment, asking the simple question, how can I help? Okay, and the reason for the question was to try and help people do their jobs in a way that they really wanted to do. And what would the impact of that be? Well, okay, they would do their jobs more, quote, efficiently, effectively. And secondly, performance would go up. And at the end of the day, all of these things, and I call them my audacious moves, all of these moves were not intended just to be cool and fun. They were intended to drive performance, and collectively they did. I could not point to one textbook principle, okay, that I could attribute a part of the billion dollars to. But I'll tell you what, I could have, I could apportion a heck of a lot to a, a, a rule or a, a program that we came up with called uh, "Kill Dumb Rules." Okay, that's the difference. And and so I'm spending my life now trying to make people aware and share simple little things like killing dumb rules, like cutting the crap, like hiring for goosebumps that really had a profound effect in the workplace, enhanced performance and drove the growth of the business. The thing I, I love about that is the way you say them, they sound so cool, but they're really <laughs> common sense, very boring observations that everybody's ignoring, right? Yeah. Like the idea of hiring for goosebumps if you don't got a good feeling, why are you hiring this guy? Because he has a great resume? Yeah, exactly you know, if, right. you, if, if you don't think he's a good fit for your company, you're not getting along with the guy. You don't think he works hard based on the conversation you had with him. He doesn't sound like a go-getter. He doesn't sound excited. Why are you hiring him, right? Yeah. Why, why, killing dumb rules. <clears throat> why do you have this rule if your customers hate it? They're destroying your reputation online. And every day you got to deal with customer support for it. Why do you have that rule? Right. There's so much common sense in all these little sayings, all these little things you, you, you come up with. And that's what I really love is that they're, they're common sense insights that 99% of us are missing. <laughs> I love you, Bill. I love you, Bill. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it, it, it blows my mind because I've learned most of these the hard way, to be honest with you. Yeah, but, but, mo but look at most, most of us. Have, I mean, I never started out. Uh, thinking that uh, that that the only statement, for example, would have such a a profound effect. I never I never started out thinking that heading west was a valid strategic intent. I never started out thinking that marketing to cravings was needed. I discovered those along the way by being open uh, to what was going on around me, by being able to move quickly by listening and listening and listening to the people on the front line that knew what the heck was going on. And so you develop this repertoire, if you will, 
okay, of what I will call moves throughout your life. You develop them uh, in a world where you learn what works and what doesn't. You don't learn them in a world from a textbook. Never will happen. Never will happen. And we need collectively, through conversations like this, we need to try and change that, right? If we could get the ship moving just slightly right, right away from that conformity compliance model, think about the economic impact in the world. Mm -hmm. It would be huge because people would learn how to differentiate themselves better as an individual, as a partner in a, in a relationship, as a business in a competitive market. They would learn to do that better and just think about the positive impacts that would create. I mean, it blows my mind. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. Yeah, I think we cut back to a world where we actually have choices and we're not ran by five or six giant conglomerations in every category. And I think that's an exciting world where we could have a lot more choice that fits our exact uh, desires, needs. And I think it would be good for the consumer, it'd be good for the business, it'd be good for society as a whole and the economy. So Roy, we're getting near the end here. I wanted to give you a moment to talk about what you are up to next and how the listeners can find you. So I'll answer it. Thank you, Bill, for having me, by the way. It's been fun. Uh, I can be reached. I have a website called bedifferentorbedead.com. I've been doing this since 2009. I blog every week. So there's tons of content around what we've been discussing on the website. So hopefully that's a resource that, that, that people would like. I've written seven books on this subject in various ways. And I, my latest is called Be Different or Be Dead, The Audacious Unheard of Ways I Took a Startup to a Billion in Sales. If you're interested in, in my books, you can find that on my website as well. Um, and also I've got an email address, roy.osing at gmail.com. I'm really happy to have a conversation with anybody uh, who, who wants to engage with me a, a, around this content. Because that's basically, to answer the first question you asked, that's basically what I'm doing. I'm trying to spend a lot of time uh, engaging with people, sharing my, my, my uh, successes and failures in this whole notion of be different or be dead in hopes that it will make a difference out there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Roy. We really appreciated having you. This is just a reminder, everybody, we're Monday and Friday, so make sure you don't miss a single episode of Disruptive Minds.